Bill Parker's going to come pray for our service this morning. Um, those of you who don't know Bill and just wonder why this, Bill is one of our elders, so he comes just to pray for the message every week. God, we lift up Paul before he preaches today. Ask that you would give him your power, Lord, to speak to us today. Give him wisdom and courage to do it well. I pray that you'll bless him as he preaches to us and teaches us today. God, help us to learn from your word, perhaps things we didn't know before. I pray that you would reveal that to us, that you would bless this man as he produces it, God. Thank you so much for him. We ask your blessings upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I would be remiss in uh, not, not recognizing our own Sierra Ward sitting out here. Sierra Ward, mentioned many times in the Hickory Daily Record because she is the star of the Fred T. Ford ladies volleyball team who is now going on to regionals because they won conference. So if you hate Jesus and don't like to pray, their game is going to be during our prayer time on Tuesday night. So we'll pray for you while you're there supporting them. But I'm just kidding. But um, if you live out in the Fred T. Ford area like we do, God's country, um, go support them. Sierra, super proud of you. So turn over with me now to Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent. Psalm of ascent. And I'll read it, and then we'll kind of talk about what a psalm of ascent is, because that's where we're going to be. As Bob said, we're, we're working on the psalms of ascent to Christmas. Psalm 121. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. He will not let you stumble and fall. The one who watches over you will not sleep. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never tires and never sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not hurt you by day nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all evil and preserves your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and as you go, both now and forever. Psalms of Ascent were designed to be sung on the way to Jerusalem by the pilgrim Israelite. Uh, they would be going to a religious festival. They would be going to a feast. They might just be going on Sunday to worship at the temple because Solomon's temple, especially at that time, was one of the seven great wonders of the world. It was amazing. Uh, but they would get together and they would sing these songs on the journey. Now, I'm just going to take you back to 1987 where I am a freshman in high school and my family is trying to find a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. We had just moved from Rocky Mount that summer to Raleigh, North Carolina. And I wanna tell you about my family. Uh, I was an annoying 14-year-old, going on 15-year-old that had to change my hairstyle six times on Sunday morning on the way to church. Like, I don't know if you have teenagers in your house, but like, you know, you're like, I don't know how popping the girls in Sunday school might be this morning, so I might need to part it this way. And then you kind of let it dry, and you put your stuff, and then you're like, no, I might need to part it the other way, you know? And it's that whole thing where your dad or your mom's at the foot of the stairs, you're like, they're like, come on! And you're like, I'm almost done! And then five minutes later, come on! I'm almost done! And then finally, you know, the shoe comes flying up the steps at you, you know, get down here! Well, so there's that kid, and I was that kid. And then my brother, and I love that my brother did this now, and it gives me so much joy to know how much brother, my brother gave grief to my family doing this. But my brother, who is six years younger than me, so at this time he's eight years old, knew how to get my mom's goat the best of anyone in my entire family. So whenever my mom would ask my brother to do something that kind of offended him, he would run out into the hallway right in front of where she was and go, Yes, Sergeant! 
And it drove her crazy. I mean, like, she just wanted to be like, take you down the stairs, you know. He was just drive her crazy. Well, also, dads, you know that when someone that's one of your children offends your wife, that's when you go into full Godzilla mode. So, like, my dad, who had been doing nothing, reading the New York Times or whatever like that, you know, eating his scone or whatever like that, trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he'd hear my brother disrespect, and then my dad would just blow a gasket. And he is just, he is livid. And so I'm, like, being lazy and trying, and, you know, doing my, fixing my hairstyle 15 different ways and putting Clearasil on every part of my face that you can see. My brother is offending my mom. My mom is angry because my brother's offending him. And now my dad is angry at all of us, and then we get in the car to go to church to have a wonderful experience with the risen Lord Savior. And my mom, at this point in time, also had come to the conclusion that if anyone who was a greeter at church tried to hug her, she would leave. She was just that kind of person. And I remember going to Highland Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and my mom walking through the door, and I always let her go first because I wanted to see what happened. And she's walking up there, and the person's like, oh, welcome to Highland. She's like, and I'm out. And literally went back to the car, we went whatever the church was down the street. And so, like, I can't possibly imagine is sitting there in our Dodge Blue Airy station wagon going to church, and my mom turning around and going, oh, let's all sing a song this morning. Man, ain't no way that is happening. No way. I mean, like, and for some reason, you can get your kids out the door five days a week to school without an incident, but try to get them to church on Sunday morning, and it requires an interballistic continental missile to get them there. Intercontinental ballistic missile. Anyway. But these are psalms to be sung on the way to church, and sometimes from a long distance, sometimes from a long distance. So what we, where we come into contact with this in our lives, because this isn't foreign to us, is that as Christians, we're both disciples, that means we follow, and we're pilgrims, which means we pursue. And Jesus would say about his disciples in John chapter 17, they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. This world is not our home. We are passing through. So just like the Israelites, we're also pilgrims. We're passing through. This is not our home. And secondly, we are following the Lord. And sometimes we are called to follow the Lord in places where there are scary things, in places where things that cause us to doubt or places that things are temptations to us. And so, but we continue to go. And so why would there be then songs that they would sing? Why would they sing songs? One is that songs remind you of your purpose. Songs, you know, there, there's a reason why we sing, you know, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. You know, you sing that, it reminds you of your purpose and it reminds you of who God is and what his character is. Also, secondly, it builds unity. A song builds unity. doesn't matter how small your voice is or how great your voice is. We are the choir of church and there is a place for us here. But then not only that, a, a psalm also, a psalm of ascent is the, it answers the question why once you're a little bit farther down the road. And parents, you understand this. You've decided you're going to drive to Disney World from Charlotte or from Hickory. And you get about somewhere down in Georgia. And you're after about seven hours in the car with your kids, you're like, why are we doing this again? Why? We, Carowinds was six hours ago. We could have been there by now and not dealt with this mess. But there is, there is a part where we as pilgrims, we need to come back and go, all right, we need to come back to the why, center ourselves on the why so that we can continue to go forward. So here you have the Psalms of Ascent. The other part about the Psalms of Ascent is it's just very simple. Israel in the capital Jerusalem or, or David's city Jerusalem or Zion was literally on a mountaintop. So not only to go up to the city, but to go up to the temple, you had to go up. So you sing a song on your way up that prepares, that centers, that reminds, and then, that then continues to answer the question, why are we doing this again? Why sing? So then why sing as well? 
Why do you sing? Why, why, is, why can they have just, just said it out loud? You know what I've realized is that you can't sing and complain at the same time. You cannot sing and complain at the same time. It's the same reason why if you've ever seen the old movies where the people on the chain gang are doing something, they're doing what? Singing, that's the sound of the men working. You know, exactly. You can't sing and complain at the same time. And so there's a divine purpose in this. So let's go to the text and look at these verses so we can get into a little bit of application. But verse 1 is probably the most misinterpreted verse in the entire Bible because you and I have grown up singing these songs. I lift my eyes up to the... Oh, come on. You know you listen to 106.9. Where does my help come from? And we sing, can we sing that? And we think of it when we're getting on 321 and we go, oh, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And we think that there's something, you know, spiritual and, and good about lifting our eyes up to the mountains. That's not what this verse is about at all. It's, this verse actually answers the question later on. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? And it's a question to yourself. If you listen, if you look at Psalm 103, Psalm 103 says this, praise the Lord, I tell myself. Praise the Lord with all my whole heart, and I remember. So there's this idea of preaching to yourself and asking rhetorical questions. And so he says, does my help come from the mountains? No. And what you need to realize is the mountains were not places of peace. The mountains were places of distress. And so if you don't believe me, read the parable of the Good Samaritan. What happens to the guy that the Good Samaritan's helping Along the mountain passes of the roads on the way to Jericho, he gets what? Jumped. The mountain passes and the places were dangerous. Those were the places where people who would jump you, people who would rob you, would stay. But not only that, just having come out of the book of Ezekiel, what do we remember about Ezekiel? God calls Ezekiel and he says, listen, you go prophesy against the mountains. Not literally against the mountains, their inanimate self, but for the fact that the people went and worshipped idols on the tops of mountains so that they could get away from everyone else. And so the mountains do not represent a thing of peace or somehow this building up. They represent danger. They represent humanity at its worst. And so he says, listen, do they give you peace? Does your strength come from there? And then in verse 2, it answers the question. So verse 2 answers the question. He says, no, no, no. My help does not come from creation, nor does it come from created things or man-made things. My help comes from the creator himself. There's a personalness, the creator himself. And so the other part about it, it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. I'm considering them. They are a choice. They are a choice for me to fear. They are a choice for me to be tempted. I see them, and in the light of what I see, I do not choose them. In the light of what I see, I do not choose them. My hope instead is in the Lord, is in the Lord, the one himself, the one who does it himself. And so verse 3, verse 3 is one of these verses that if you take out of context and just read this verse and do not apply it to anything else in the Bible and just pull this verse out, you will be a very discouraged believer. Because verse 3 is one of these ones where you can't just do Bible roulette, pick this one out, and verse 3 and have it be your life verse because you will be very discouraged. Because verse 3 tends to read like nothing bad will ever happen to you if you follow the Lord. It's going to be a pillowy rose garden the entire way. But if we look at the entire, or what's called the full counsel of Scripture, we hear Jesus say, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And the very end of Ephesians, Paul says, and on the day of battle, you will be able to stand firm no matter how much evil comes to you because you will be wearing the full armor of God. So there's not this idea that the Christians don't undergo or go through evil. It's that, that God will watch and cares about your every single step. He will not let you stumble. What it means literally is he will watch the very movements of your feet. He will watch the very movements of your feet. And the care that he gives you is supernatural. The care that he gives you is supernatural. He is attentive to every step and his eyes and ears are always upon you. 
Then in verse 4, we get this word where it says, he who watches over Israel. The actual word is keep. He keeps you. He keeps you. And it says this, that he never sleeps or slumbers. He never sleeps or slumbers. Now, parents that have had a baby, you know how this goes. You have your baby, and you just put it in the crib, or maybe even, you know, you, you, you have children, and you go into their room just to check on them before you turn out their light light, and you sit there, and you watch them. Do you watch them all night? No. Their cuteness is no match for your weakness, right? Because all of a sudden, you watch them, and you're like, they're real cute. I'm real sleepy. And then you go, and I got, and I'm out, and I go to bed. Well, God watches you through the night. His care for you is unconditional, and it is not affected by anything of this world. And so then verse 5, we get this other part where if you look in the Scripture, there's not a part in the Scripture where someone says, hey, God is omnipresent. That's what we infer from what Scripture tells us. But notice in verse 5 says this, God is both reigning on the throne and simultaneously walking with you on the journey. He is simultaneously reigning on the throne and with you on your journey. He's omnipresent. And then, I love it, it says, the Lord himself. He doesn't delegate care to someone else. He does it himself. Now, years ago when I was probably a sophomore at Appalachian or junior maybe even, I never had out of class in the art building. And I had to get that art 101, appreciation, whatever thing, out of the way. And if you've ever been in the art the art building at Appalachian, we've got a room 101A, a room 101B, a room 101B 2.5, you know, and it's just kind of like, it's, they read like software files. And I'm walking and there's art stuff everywhere and people are doing performance art in the middle of the thing, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I came late to class, I've just come from another class, and I don't know where I'm going. And this distinguished guy sees me looking around and he's like, can I help you? And I said, I'm looking for this art 101, blah, 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 blah class. And he said, oh, hey, I know where that is. And he takes me and he goes and he opens the door. And as I'm opening the door, I'm like, thank you so much. My name's Paul. And he says, my name's Frank Borkowski. That didn't mean anything to you. But at 19, in 1993, he was the chancellor of Appalachian. The chancellor himself walked me to class. He didn't delegate that. He just goes, hey, Margie, this kid doesn't know where he's going. Take him in there. Yeah. Takes me himself. And God says, the care that I give to you is not delegated care. It's me. It's me, myself. And so then God's, and then verse 6, we get the whole idea, too, that God's watchfulness is not conditional. Day or night, day or night, God's watchfulness isn't conditional. Now, day, sun represents the physical hurt, the physical hurt to the traveler, the sunburn, the heat exhaustion, the dehydration, the whatever. But then the night, you and I need to go back and we need to think about how the ancients thought about things because the ancients believed that the moon had evils. That's where we get the word lunacy from. And so this was also said, there's the physical care that God gives you, but then there's also the mental and emotional care that God gives you. His care for you is not conditional. And then in verse 7, we get the whole thing of, again, you've got to read this in context of the entire Bible. He will keep you from evil. Now, he will keep you from evil. This is not the promise, again, of a pillow-coated rose garden. But what it is, is the whole idea of what happens in Psalm 23 as well. What does David say in Psalm 23? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Does he say, I didn't even get off on the exit where the shadow of death was. Me and my camel just kicked it into high gear and we got in the HOV lane and kept going. We avoided the valley. No, he doesn't say that. I was in the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not fear evil. I will not fear evil. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul tries to expound on this. He says, when bad things happen, when things don't look like they're good, the powers of heaven, the powers of hell, anything, will that separate us from the love of God? No. For I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's what that is talking about. And then finally, 
verse 8 is that God is Lord over time. And it's pretty gutsy for anyone to say forever in anything. Forever. Forever. Brian Adams, you know, and all these people and, uh, you know, and, and Dolly Parton and I will always love you. And I'm kind of like, yeah, until you die. That's not really romantic in the song to say that, though. But it's pretty gutsy because he says, then, now, later, doesn't really matter. When you're going, when you're coming, I'm watching over you. I'm watching over you. And the other part about this is that there's a part of it that is the cynical people in this room are going to get, but there's no part of your life that is insignificant to God, and there's no detail in your life that is minor to God. Every detail of your life is major. So if you're a cynical person like me, you get kicked into high gear when you see, you go to the restaurant, you see the big like bouquet of flowers at the table and they're just eating chocolate and they've got the champagne and whatnot and the lobster thermidor and you're like, oh, is this a special occasion? And the couple looks up at you and goes, yes, this is our seven week anniversary. And you want to be like, check back with me in 19 years and then you can have something to celebrate. Or, you know, moms, I want to pick on you, but I'm going to pick on you. You know, and you meet the mom, and she's holding her baby. People that don't care don't refer to their babies and how months they old are. But you, would you just, how old's your baby? She's 21 and three quarters months old. And the rest of us are like, oh, so she's not two yet. Okay. You know, but it's major to us, right? And God's the same way. There is no detail that is minor to God. Every detail about your life is major to him. Every detail. And God says, amen. I'm caring for you. So, Let's talk about these psalms of ascent in terms of the application part. Now, I think a lot of times Christians think, listen, there's things in my life that cause me fear. There's things in my life that cause me doubt. And if I can just arrange my life to never have to deal with anything that causes me fear, to never have to deal with anything that causes me to doubt, to never have to have me deal with anything that causes apprehension, I'm going to arrange my life around that. And I want to tell you that is not what Psalm 121 is. So Psalm 121 is this, the life of the disciple, which if you and I call ourselves followers of Christ, then we're disciples. The life of the disciple or the pilgrim, this world is not our home, we're passing through. The life of the disciple or pilgrims consists not in avoiding fears, but considering our fears in comparison to God. We consider our fears and doubts in comparison to God. And so I'll look at verses one and two, and verses one and two are those easy ones, but he says this, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, and to the hills. Does my help come from there? No. My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. He made them, he holds them, he watches over them. And so this is, he says, the psalmist is saying this, I will behold not only the things that would cause me to be paralyzed with fear, but also the things that could cause me to trust in idolatry. And I will take them and I will behold them and I will compare them to what I have in God. To what I have in God. And, and part of this as well is that you need to look at what's happening in this text. There's no one preaching to this person who is leading the psalm of ascent. The one who is leading the psalm of ascent is preaching to himself. And so I want to say this to you. When you consider the things in your life that cause you fear, the things in your life that cause you anxiety, the things in your life that cause you doubt, and there's no one around to preach the gospel to you, you preach it to yourself. You tell yourself what you know about God, and that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. When others aren't telling us about Jesus, we speak Jesus to ourselves. 
And the part that is so beautiful about this and the part that is so powerful is that we can sit here in church and talk about the faith that we have in the Lord, the hope that we have in the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the power of the Lord. It's all good and well here, but typically when we come and we face the mountain in our life, when we come and we face the situation, the scenario, the, the, the thing, the problem, the issue, we tend to not do it and we go, it's just better if I could just avoid those things. But I want to tell you something. The most powerful issuances of faith that come out of a believer's mouth come when they stand face to face with the thing that could paralyze them in fear and they say, I see you, I'm not ducking you, and I know that the one who holds me is greater. The one that holds me does not sleep. The one that holds me does not delegate my care to someone else, but cares for me personally. And so you've heard this said before. The Bible says, 365 times, do not fear. 365 times the Bible says, do not fear. Not once does the Bible say, fear is not real, anxiety is not real, frustration is not real, pain is not real. It never says that, but it says continually, do not fear. And so a disciple follows, and a pilgrim continues, because it is what we do. And we do it looking at the things that could cause us fear, looking at the things that could cause us not to pursue, looking at the things that could cause us not to follow, and we go, I see you, but I choose to consider you in light of who I know God is and what I know that he does. Now, it's unrealistic to say, unrealistic to say God will never allow bad to happen or I'll never be confronted with evil. That's not going to happen. We will. We will both see and experience evil and bad things on our life journey. And so also, on the other hand, it's also unrealistic to say, I can go the rest of my life and avoid things or places or scenarios or situations where I will be confronted with fear, where I'll be confronted with doubt, where I'll be confronted with disappointment. We will both see and experience this in our journey. The road to Jerusalem, that's the Psalm of Ascent, led up through the mountains. It led through the mountains. There wasn't any avoiding the mountains. It's kind of like, if you want to go to Grandfather Mountain, guess what you're going to have to go through? The mountains. Duh. You know, and so he says, you're going to have to do this. But again, you do this considering. Now, the other thing that Christians often do, too, is we do kamikaze style. I'm just going to put my head down, and I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to pay attention to anything else. I'm just going to go. And we've also seen this happen, and it's terrible when it happens in the church. <laughs> it's awful when it happens in the church. People steamroll right into things. And the things that cause me fear, I'm not going to do it. Gonna do it. That's not what this is about either. It's about considering the things that truly cause us fear, considering the things that cause us anxiety, considering the things that would trip us up, and looking at them in comparison with God and going, I understand what they are, but I also understand what I have in the Lord. Now, part of this comes, and I want to give you the village visual illustration. I used to work at a ropes course at a camp, and we would be places where we would be 60 to 65 feet high in the eastern North Carolina pine canopy, way off the ground. And you would eventually have someone that would get way, way high, and you have to kind of go up this tree, go across this thing, go up this thing, go over that thing, do this, slide over this, walk over this thing, and then you'd have to go to this very, very tall thing so you could zip line down. And what would happen was people would go, and they would get to that part, and all of a sudden they would just stop. And they could see it, and there's no way of not seeing that which causes them fear. There's no way of avoiding that which would cause them anxiety. There's no way of saying, is there another way to do this? They're in the middle of it. And in the middle of those things, every instructor will tell you, when someone is tempted to not go on, when someone is tempted to say, I can't do it anymore, you tell them, hey, look at me. Look at me. And it takes a while. 
Because sometimes people are just doing this, and they're their eyes closed, as if closing their eyes could make whatever they were going through go away. Christians, we can't close our eyes. And so I would wait until that person would open their eyes, and they would open their eyes, and they're holding the rope, or they're holding the tree. There's a new, new meaning to the word tree hugger. And they're holding the tree, and I'll look up, and I'll go, look at my eyes. Listen to my voice. You can do this. You can do this. 25 people just did it before you. I'm right here. I'm not going to let you go. Feel this. And I would tug on the rope, and the rope would go, poof, poof, and I'd pull them up because they're on my belay. And they would go, ah. And eventually, you know, it wouldn't happen that they would go, okay, yeah, I'd jump out. But eventually, slowly, they would start moving. And I would say, keep looking at me. Keep listening to my voice. And it was that they were surrounded by the things that would cause them anxiety, fear, doubt. But they chose to listen, and they chose to see. And so part of us as Christians is we realize and we believe that Jesus is greater. Jesus is more powerful. Jesus is unmoved. And the things that affect us don't affect him. Secondly, God's power, his power, is not diminished by the date, it's not diminished by the doubt, and it's not diminished by the destination. God's power is not diminished by the date, the doubt, or the destination. So verses 4 and 5 in this text, Indeed, he who watches over Israel never tires, never sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. He never sleeps, he never slumbers, and he himself keeps you. Now that doesn't work in our world when we look at earthly things. The date, doubt, and destination often very much cause there to be fear, panic, anxiety, and doubt itself. Case in point, when I was uh, probably, when I just graduated from Appalachian, Danielle was still working on her master's degree. I, uh, I, we were there, I was working with Young Life. And one night, I got asked to come back to InterVarsity. InterVarsity is a Christian ministry where I began to lead worship. And so I was the worship leader, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. And then I came back, and this was the first year that I hadn't led worship. And I had trained about 10 people to do it. And they start and they begin to sing a song. And no one knows how it starts or what the tempo is. So this person over here is going, jing, 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 jing. And this person over here is going, jing, 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 jing. This person's singing something else. This person's singing. And then they had to just stop. Do you remember this? And they kind of looked around at each other. And then someone was like, do you, think, do you think Paul could help do this? And I was like, too late. I'm gone. I'm just here to speak. I don't even know what song you're trying to do. It's just too late. I don't know. What song is it? Is it in Spanish? I don't know. What, what is it? And so the date had passed. I was gone. I couldn't help. I couldn't get up there. I was just kind of like, move on to Lord of Lifter and I'm high. Everyone, everyone knows that song. But then also, too, doubt creeps in. The other week when Hannah was uh, playing in her state, uh, state, she was playing in the state championship tennis match. They were playing Hendersonville High School. Hendersonville High School thought they were studs. And Ford beat them in the first set 6-0. You have never seen doubt cripple people like that. Like, they walked in, there was all, yeah, what's going on, what's going on? Wearing their, like, Air Yeezy tennis, you know, I don't even know what it was. They, was, they thought they were so cool. And after 6-0 in the first set, they just kind of looked like deer in headlights. And it was too late. Doubt had crippled them. And then... Ford and Hannah and her partner went on and whooped their tails in the second match. I can brag about that. Don't tell Henderson that I said that. But then also, too, that's doubt. But then finally, I remember it was about two or three years ago, I was doing a wedding in Ashe County in a place that I'd never been to before, and I, and I forgot to turn, I ever done this, you forget to turn your GPS on on your phone until you're in a really bad spot that there is no GPS? And like you're, you're, you're like holding your phone, and you're standing in your sunroof and doing this. 
And I didn't know where I was going. And, and the destination had crushed the power of what I needed. But the beautiful thing is that God's power is not diminished by the date. It's never too late. God's power is not diminished by our doubt, and God's power is not diminished by the destination. In reality, we often think God is like this. It's too late or too early for God to do something. We doubt that God even has the power to do it, or we say God might be able to work there, but he ain't gonna work over here. Or even worse than that, that somehow we tie our interest with God and God's interest in us. I will never forget listening to someone that said, they, we asked him about what are your, what's your prayer life like? And he said, well, I really just don't pray because you know, there's so many other people that need God and I, and I know he's trying to deal with all their prayers and he can't deal with mine. And I'm going, do you not understand God? His power is not diminished by your doubt, nor he's so much greater than what you think. And so we think, well, if I'm fickle about God, God's probably fickle about me. If I'm interested in God, God will be interested in me. But if I'm not interested in God, he's probably not gonna be interested in me either. All of those are false. Every single last one of those things are false. And it's a beautiful thing sometimes to be proved wrong. It's a beautiful thing to be proved wrong, especially when it's for your good. Nothing will cause a pilgrim or a disciple not to follow or keep on going on faster than apathy. God doesn't really care about me, so I don't really don't care about him. He, the date is past, the doubt is too great, the destination is, is too much or too far away. But part of it is we gotta come back to this text and we look at verse four and we go, we need to understand in verse four, the psalmist is saying, listen, you are being cared for in ways that you can never imagine. When I had my surgery, they told me afterwards all the things that they were doing to me and for me and in me and around me that I had no idea about because I was out. In verse five, he reminds us, and listen, you're not being watched over by someone, you're being watched over by the Lord himself. And the beautiful thing that we need to come to the end of this psalm and say is, praise God that his power is not diminished or lessened by anything, and especially the power of his love. So his power is not diminished by your doubt, nor is it diminished by the date, nor is it diminished by the destination that you think you need to go. And finally, one last thing. One last thing. As pilgrims, we need to understand, and pilgrims along the same way too back then in this text, we are prone to paralysis. So here's your alliteration. Pilgrims are prone to paralysis. Pilgrims are prone to paralysis. But verse 8 says something beautiful. Verse 8 says, the Lord watches over, keeps watch over you as you come and go both now and forever. And there's a beautiful thing because what is the noun uh, other than the personal I that starts out at the very beginning of this text? It says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. This psalm begins with mountains and it ends with forever. And there's an incredible thing that you and I need to understand when we look at the way this psalm begins and ends. Guess what will not last forever? The mountain. Isn't that crazy? When we think about the things that last for forever, we'll go, oh, these, these hills right here, they've been here, you know. Nope. There will come a day when the mountains will be leveled and God will have a, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the thing that it is that is so hard, the thing that it is that is causing you so much pain, the thing that it is, the thing that is that is causing you so much doubt or anxiety or whatever is not forever. And the text ends with the thing that you and I need to understand is that the only thing that is forever in this world is God. And who is he for? For us. For us. It begins with the mountains. It ends with forever. Because even the greatest things that cause us fear and weariness and doubt do not last forever. Only God does. Now before we talk a little bit more about paralysis, paralysis is not rest. 
Paralysis is not rest. Exodus 28, God commanded that we, 20, verse 8, commanded that we rest. Paralysis is not rest. When you're on a long trip and you stop at the, you stop at the rest area, you go and you rest. Now, if you start building a house at the rest area, you're paralyzed. You have paralysis. That's not where you're supposed to go. You're supposed to continue on. Paralysis is where you give up on your journey because you're weary. You give up on your journey because it is too painful. You give up on your journey because you doubt the purpose of that again. Now, you know what? Danielle and I have something called table rock paralysis. Anybody that's ever driven up Highway 181 and gotten off on Table Rock Road, you know what I'm talking about. It's why we end up at Hawksbill Mountain all the time. Do you know why? Because that road to Table Rock is also ought to be renamed the Trail of Tears, a.k.a. the Batan Death March. Now, I have a truck, and it's fun to drive these roads, but after you've been doing it a while, you're like, are we there yet? I don't know. Shut up. You know, and that's how Danielle talks to me. Just kidding. I, she didn't talk to me that way. But we have Table Rock Paralysis. And we're, we always are like, hey, let's go to Table Rock today. Okay, great. And then we get on the road, and we're like, forget this. Let's just go to Hawksville. It's here. And we never get there. We've, we've been there. Don't worry. But it's too far away. We're just too weary, and we stop. But also, too, I've had so many conversations with men, and men that are single, and they've, they've gone out there, and they've tried to date, and they put their heart out there somewhere, and the heart got crushed, or the trust got rejected, and they just kind of go, well, I'm, I'm done now. I'm, I'm not going to give my trust, or I'm not going to give myself out to anyone else. I'm done. I'm stopped here. And, and, and I want to say, you're paralyzed. And the thing that really breaks my heart, then, is, is the college student, especially. The college student, especially, that comes into contact with first time in their life with something that causes them doubt. And rather than going to, one of the things we've been going on through with our youth is we have good answers. We have good answers. We have faith not based on faith alone, but faith based on facts, faith based on, faith based on evidence. But they hit that doubt, and that doubt paralyzes them. And the next thing you know, it, the doubt causes them to even step back from the church, and they have reverse paralysis. And they become paralyzed even apart from the place that could help them. We are prone to paralysis. We're prone to stopping on the journey. We're prone. We're prone to set up a permanent camp that's, not, that's on the way but not there. And we forget that the destination is in Christ himself. But I want you to think about that first verse and that last verse. As formidable as the mountains are, the place where the robbers hide, the place where the, the places of temptation and doubt and despair are, as formidable as they are, they are not forever. And so I know that you are in something right now that you cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel and you're pretty sure there is no light. But I'm here to tell you it's not forever. And this verse ends reminding us with one thing, the only thing that is forever is the Lord and guess who the Lord is for? He is for us. This past week was super tough. We had two tough weeks here at church. A tough week where uh, Alan and Diana Williams lost their three-month-old child. And that communion is going to be very different today because for, for a couple years now, uh, April Sigmund Barlow, I didn't know who she was. She, she and her husband started attending our church, she and her family. They started attending our church, and the first time I met her, the first time I met her was in this time where we say, if you would like prayer, please come down front and the pastor will be here to pray for you. And so this little lady who's 47 years old, she's just a little bit older than me, she's literally this tall, would come up and she would talk to me and she'd say, I've got stage four cancer. I've got stage four cancer. The doctors don't know how long I've got. Will you pray for me? And once a week, once a week, once a month, when she would come down, I'd pray for her. And occasionally she'd come down front and she'd tell me something awesome like, 
My, my numbers look really good. They're going to let me go home today. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to do this or that. Uh, and yet, the Lord took her home this past week after a week of being at hospice. But as I sat in her room, and it was crazy because I went from the graveside of the Williamses to her bedside at hospice, literally that afternoon. Went from one to the next. Two totally different things. And as I was at her bedside, she looked up at me and her sister and her husband. And she said, I'm at peace. I'm ready to go. I'm tired of fighting this battle. I'm ready to go be with the Lord. I'm ready to go be with the Lord. And there wasn't any, and there was no, like, I'm giving up. There was no, I'm giving up, or there's no, I'm throwing in the white, I'm throwing in the towel or raising the white flag. There wasn't any of that. It was, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. I know who I'm going to go be with. And it's the thing that I always say, and I'll say it this afternoon at the funeral. We love to say when someone dies, oh, we lost so-and-so this week. Christians, we ought not to say that. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. When you lose someone, you don't know where they are. We don't lose Christians. We know exactly where they are. They're with the Lord. And Paul says it, to be apart from the body is to be there together with the Lord. And April understood that what she had in Christ was forever. And that cancer, even though it was a mountain and a scary mountain at that, was going to be overcome by the Lord. So I invite you today to the table, to the remembrance of that the one that we serve is more powerful than any mountain. The one that we serve is greater than any fear. The one that we serve is far more powerful than anything we could be up against. And we look at the things that cause us to stumble, and we look at them in comparison to the Lord, and we go, I might be in the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not fear evil. 365 times in Scripture, I will not fear it, for you are with me. The one who watches over Israel never slumbers and never sleeps, and he himself watches over me.